Henry uh, C. Morrison was a missionary who served the Lord in Africa with his wife for over 40 years. On the way back to the United States, he, he began to wonder, will anyone remember us? Will anyone recall who we are? Will anyone meet us at the dock? Well, unknown to to Henry and his wife, Teddy Roosevelt, the President of the United States, was also on board that same ship as he had gone to Africa for a hunting trip. When the ship pulled into New York Harbor, Henry and his wife went up to the deck to see if anyone had come to welcome them. They saw thousands of people. A band was playing. And there were signs and banners and billboards everywhere saying, Welcome home. Henry and his wife were excited about the crowds of people who were there. They went down below to get their luggage. But when they came back to the deck to get off the ship, they realized all the people were gone or they were in the process of leaving. They had only come to welcome Teddy Roosevelt, who had gone on a hunting trip. Henry went to his hotel room with a heavy heart. As he sat on the bed, he said to his wife, Honey, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. For 40 years... For 40 long years, we, we poured our lives into ministry and service, and yet we come back to America and not a single person comes to welcome us home. His wife came and, and sat down next to her husband, and she put her, her hand on his shoulder and comforted him with the words he would never forget. Henry, have you forgotten something? We're not home yet. This morning, we're going to be talking about this home she referred to. But before I do, I I need to quickly get us caught back up since we took our our Easter break. If you recall, in his in this vision of the future given to the apostle John, the 7-year tribulation period is over. The second coming of Christ has occurred. The battle of Armageddon really wasn't that much of a battle. 
the thousand year earthly reign of Jesus has come and gone. The last rebellion by Satan is over. The earth and the atmosphere are destroyed. The great white throne judgment of the spiritually dead, the lost, the unbelieving, is adjourned. And all the ungodly are cast into the lake of fire. That's a lot. And with all of that, it might seem to be all wrapped up. But not so fast. For we come to Revelation chapter 21. And turn there. Revelation 21, where God does something totally amazing and creates a new beginning for His people. And John, poor John, is given the monumental task of trying to describe it all. So, Revelation 21, and John begins in verse 1 by telling us, and this is a doozy of a passage, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. If you remember, the Bible begins in Genesis with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know that. And now, as we find ourselves at the opposite end of the Bible, we read very similar words. Words that speak to the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. If you recall the Genesis story, okay? The Genesis story. God created man to dwell on the earth in a perfect Garden of Eden type environment to enjoy a relationship with Him. That was God's grand design from the very beginning. However, as we know, sin entered the picture and broke Man's relationship with God. But not only that, it corrupted the earth. Sin affected creation with decay and contamination and death. It was no longer a perfect environment. So God promised 
in the fullness of time, according to His grand design, He would recreate a new heaven, meaning an atmosphere, the cosmos, the solar system, literally the sky, and a new earth for His people. Now, I want to assure you that I'm not taking that one single passage and pushing some crazy theology about a new heaven and a new earth. For this reference to a new heaven and a new earth is mentioned several times in the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testaments. And as an example, I want to share what the Apostle Peter tells us. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But, according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. And I want to point out that the Greek word for new is kanus, meaning it is new in quality. It's fresh. It's previously unknown. It's different. And I say all that to say this. Our present earth our present earth will not be given a makeover. It's not being remodeled. Instead, our present earth will be destroyed. Dissolved with intense heat, just as Peter described. And a whole new earth will be created by God out of nothing. Just like He did in Genesis. It's all going to be brand new. But not only that, we are also given a clue that it will be radically different. Notice John said, there is no longer any sea. No longer any sea on this new earth. And for clarification, he is not saying there is no water. Just no seas. Now, I don't mind telling you, I wish we were given more information on this. But we are not. And as you might imagine, there are a lot of ideas out there about this. But the idea that most resonates with me is that the seas will be absent because they separate people. 
in our, think about this, in our current earthly configuration, about three quarters, about three quarters of the earth is covered in water. And some might say that is a lot of wasted space that separates people. That idea makes sense to me. But whatever God plans to do, for whatever reason He might have, I think we can safely conclude that this new earth will be radically different from our present earth. Now that vision wasn't enough for John to take in. He sees something else just as amazing. Let's continue with verse 2. And I saw, this is John speaking, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain, the first things have passed away. Jesus sees, excuse me, John sees the holy city descending from heaven, and it's the Father's house. It's the house where Jesus said He was going to prepare a place for us. If you recall, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. The Father's house is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And someday, the whole thing will descend from where God is to the earth like a bride walking down an aisle toward her husband. This will be heaven on earth where God dwells with His people, and that's what God has wanted all along. It's what He wanted when He created Adam and Eve to be among them. That's what the Ark of the Covenant represented in the Old Testament. God's presence with His people. This is why Jesus is called 
Emmanuel. God with us. It's why God dwells within us now in the person of the Holy Spirit. God wants to dwell with His people. He wants to be at home with us. And that's what we see here. This new reality was so amazing that there was nothing John could compare it to. So the best thing he could do was to de- describe it in a, in a contrasting way, using the words, no more. In our final home, there is no longer, no more death. No longer any mourning or crying or pain. I suspect people could share tears of joy and tears of laughter. I've heard some people actually claim that God removes our tear ducts. I know, I just, yeah, welcome to my world. Okay, but no, I, I don't think that. Uh, I, I, I think uh, there will be no cause for tears of sorrow or pain from the experiences in this life. For all those experiences belong to the first things, the former things where sin and death are present. But here, the first things are gone. It's the beginning of something completely brand new. Then John repeats something that is both encouraging and sobering. And he says, beginning with verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Here it appears, God the Father breaks His silence and says, Behold, I am making all things new. The Father sums it all up. His words are faithful and true. And for John, this was apparently so overwhelming that he forgot to write and had to be reminded to write. And just like in the garden, Before there was sin, 
God promises that His relationship with His people will be intimate and nourishing and thriving. And what He promises will come to pass. For He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. What He says is done, is done. Now the rest of verses 6 through 8 appear to be addressed to the seven churches. John's original audience. We can't forget that the book of Revelation is actually a very long letter. A very long letter to these churches who are being pressured to compromise their allegiance to Christ. And here, in the midst of describing the wonders of God's new creation, John reminds them that only those who overcome will inherit and experience and enjoy all these things. And who are those who overcome? John asks and answers that very question in 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, where he says, Who is the one, who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Those who overcome are those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and follow Him. They will inherit and experience and enjoy this new heaven and new earth in God's house. But unfortunately, on the flip side, there will be countless numbers of people who miss it all. Absolutely miss it all. And John gives us a sampling. For example, he says, those who miss out are are those who cowardly compromise with the world instead of trusting and following God. He He describes their behavior as continually sinful and wicked. They are murderous. They engage in sexual immorality. Their worship is misplaced on false idols and gods, and they are deceptive. And just so you know, that word, that word, uh, is it behind me? Uh, Idolaters? No, excuse me, sorcerers. The word sorcery up there, the Greek word for sorcery is pharmacia. That's where we get our word pharmacy. So that could include drug abusers as well. So these are the ones who rejected Jesus rejected His love, rejected His grace and mercy, and rejected His forgiveness. Yes, they may say they know God, 
but they live their lives as if there is no God. Their behavior reveals what they truly believe. And once again, John tells of their final destination. It's the lake of fire. Both believers and non-believers will live eternally. But in two completely separate and opposite locations. For those who trust Jesus Christ and follow Him, they will experience and enjoy heaven on earth. But for those who reject Jesus and remain in their sin, it's the lake of fire. Like it or not, that is reality. A reality we just can't ignore. Now what comes next, John has to be assigned a tour guide. And he describes what he sees on his tour, beginning with verse 9. Let me read this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had great had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel goes to John and directs him to come and see the bride. But what he shows John is not a people. It's not a people. It's a city. Why is the holy city called the bride? For the same reason... We call this building a church. It's because of the people in it. We don't go to church. We are the church. And likewise, the city is called the bride because the bride resides in it. The city takes on the identity of the residence. 
And if you notice, both the Old Testament tribes as well as the New Testament apostles are mentioned. And collectively, they represent the redeemed of all times who reside there. So this angel begins the tour by showing John the exterior of the city. A city that shines like a diamond in a bright light. And it has 12 gates. And later we are told that these 12 gates are always open. Always open. Which suggests that the residents will have freedom to go in and out to enjoy the rest of God's creation. Now, we come to some really interesting passages concerning the design of the holy city. But before we go there, I need to say something. Okay? There is a tendency by some to take the description of the city as being nothing but symbolism of some deep spiritual truth. Okay? That's how some interpret the following passages. But I completely disagree. What we are about to read is not symbolic. Because John is getting a personal tour of this city where a vivid description is given and measurements are actually taken. So I believe no matter how wondrous and amazing this is going to sound... What we are to read, what we are about to read, should be taken literally. Okay? Literally. Meaning, John is describing a real physical city. Okay? Are you with me? Okay. With that said, let's continue with John's tour, beginning with verse 15. Is it on the... Okay, here we go. John says, The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards. According to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Let's stop there. Okay. In this passage, 
we are given the dimensions of this city. It's 1,500 miles in length, 1,500 miles in width. You tracking? And get this, it is 1,500 miles in height. Just want to see your faces, that's all. Just looking, just looking to see your faces. Do you remember the most sacred place in the Jewish temple? It's the, the inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies. Right? Remember that? And it's where the Ark of the covenant, the symbol of God's presence, was kept. Ring it a bell? If you look, if you look at 1 Kings chapter 6, we're not going there. If you look in 1 Kings chapter 6, you will see that this inner sanctuary had the dimensions of a cube. 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. So in many respects, we could describe this cubed city as the Holy of Holies, where God dwells. Well, how big is this city? You got that slide up? Okay. I calculated, and I'm not a math wizard, but I calculated that the base, just the base alone, would be 2.25 million square miles. 2.25 million square miles. And just for comparison, the state of Washington is is just about 71,000 square miles. So 2.25 million square miles is just the base alone. But when considering that the city is actually cubed, that would be 3.4 billion cubic miles. Now, critics, and there are critics, say this, this massive city would never fit on the present earth. It would defy physics and atmospheric conditions. And I understand that. That's probably true. But keep in mind that first and foremost, this is God's doing. It's His creation. And secondly, we are never told how large the new earth will be. We're not told about that. We have already been told that there will be no seas. 
So from that, we know that the new earth will be vastly different from our present earth. And maybe much larger in size. So, will this city be large enough to get all of us in? Can we all get in there? Henry Morris, who is a, a scientist and apparently had a lot of free time on his hands, says this. Although there's no way to know precisely how many people will be there, one can make at least somewhat an accurate guess. In his calculation, he estimated that from the time of Adam through the future millennial kingdom, about 100 billion people will have populated the earth. That's past, present, and future. Okay? 100 billion people. That's a lot of people. Then Morris says, assume for the sake of argument that 20% of these will be saved. Including all of those who die in infancy. It's obviously only a guess, but the Lord Jesus did make it plain that a large majority will never be saved. Remember, the road is narrow that leads to salvation. The, the road is wide that leads to destruction. So if this figure is used, then the new Jerusalem would have to accommodate 20 billion residents. Okay? 20 billion. Also assume that 25% of the city is used for the dwelling places. With the rest allocated to streets and parks and public buildings and etc. and etc. Okay? Work with me here. Then he figures out in some exotic calculation. Again, he's a scientist. That the average space assigned to each person in this city, 20 billion residents, would be 75 acres per person. Your room, 75 acres. So we're not packed into this city like sardines. And besides all of that, we are coming in and out of the city as we please. That's amazing. In regards to the wall, which is probably just a memorial to God's protection of His people, we are not told what the measurement of 72 yards refers to. We're not told. 
Some suggest it refers to the height, which would seem kind of odd if you have a, a wall that's 216 feet and, a, and, a, you know, and then you've got this building that goes 1,500 miles. It looks kind of odd. It looks kind of awkward. So maybe they're referring to the thickness of this wall versus the height. We're just not told what it, what it is. And it's only a guess on my part. Now, surely at some point, someone is going to say, you're nuts. This can't be taken literal. The dimensions just can't be right. To which we already, already read in verse 17, our human measurements are the same as the angelic measurements. But John is not finished. And he continues with his description beginning with verse 18. And he says, The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony. Uh, Hope I said that right. The fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. The city's construction it's definitely something to marvel at. For we are told that the walls are, are jasper, like diamond. But the city itself will be made of pure gold, so pure it is clear as crystal. Then we come to the foundation. And when you think of a building foundation, we know they are typically underground out of sight. But that's not the case here. The foundation of this city will be constructed with precious stones and gems and visible to all. Can you just imagine the light just refracting and bouncing off all these, all these gems? Can't, can't even fathom that. Then we get to the 12 gates made from single pearls. And I can't even guess what that would be like. But I will say that of all the building materials, of all the building materials, the pearl is the only one produced by a living creature. Formed in response to suffering. Maybe as we go in and out of the city, the pearl will remind us that our access to God's house 
is only because of the Lord's suffering on our behalf. Maybe that's the case. So that was the outside of the city. Now, the tour takes John inside, beginning with verse 22. John says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In this city, there is no temple, there is no church. We don't need to go to a place of worship because it is a place of worship. The whole city is a tabernacle where God dwells in full fellowship with His people. God is everywhere. Everywhere. We're also told this city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. And many take that to mean there will be no sun or moon. But the passage does not actually say that. That's not what it says. It only tells us the city has no need. No need of their light. Because God's glory is in its midst. And if you remember back to the original creation story in Genesis, the presence of light came before the sun and the moon. Then John tells us, the nations will walk by its light and the kings will bring glory into it. Meaning, all of the redeemed who are written in the Lamb's book of life from all ages, all times, from every tribe and tongue will be walking in the light of the city. A city where one's former status, even the status of a powerful king, will no longer matter. For all human glory will be gone in light of the glory of God. Only the redeemed, only those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will inherit and experience and enjoy all of this. But those who have rejected Jesus and remain in their sin, they will never enter the city because 
they have been thrown in the lake of fire. One day, the great preacher, George W. Truett, was invited to dinner at the house of a very wealthy man in Texas. After their meal, his host led him to a hill where they had a good view of the surrounding area. Pointing to the oil wells punctuating the landscape, the wealthy man boasted, 25 years ago, I had nothing. Now, as far as you can see in every direction, it's all mine. The wealthy man paused, expecting a compliment on his great success. However, Dr. Truett placed one hand on the man's shoulder, pointed to heaven with the other, and asked, How much do you have in that direction? How much do you have in that direction? And the wealthy man admitted he had never thought of that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. It, it, is a, it is a word that is hard to, uh, to grasp in my, in my finite mind. I don't have the creativity and the imagination uh, to fully grasp what we've just read. But Father, I thank You. I don't have to. What You said is true. For Your words are faithful and they are true. I thank You, Lord, that as followers of Jesus, we have a home. And this is not it. This present earth is not it. We have a home far beyond we could ever imagine that You are making for us. You are preparing for us as a bride for her husband. I look forward to that day, Lord. I look forward to that day. But Father, while we wait, help us to be about Your business. Help us to, to follow You. Help us to obey You. Help us to love You. May you be honored and glorified, for you are worthy of all honor and all glory. Use us as you see fit. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. After going through that passage, I mean, I, I'll admit, I got a lot of questions. I've got a lot of questions.
I mean, if I walk out the city, I love hiking. You know I love hiking, right? So if I go, if I want to go hiking one day, I'm in a glorified body, right? Can I go hiking on Jupiter? I don't know. I mean, those are the kind of questions I have. I don't know. I know God created animals in the, in the, in the very beginning, and He said it was good. I can only assume He's going to create animals on this new, this new earth. I think I'm going to have a pet. Maybe a triceratops. And I will call him George. I will call him George. My mind just races. I mean, it just I, I have more I have more more questions than I have answers. It's just going to be marvelous. It's going to be outrageous. I look forward to my new home. And this is not it. And the sad part, there will be many who miss it all. You know what? You know what's really sad? That for some, think about this a second. That for some who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, think about this. Their time on this earth is as close as they will ever get to heaven. It's as close as they will get. That's scary, isn't it? We need to be about the Lord's business. We need to share what we know. There's plenty of room in God's house. Jesus said, I go to prepare room for you. That's an understatement. to be about his business. Sharing what we know to those who do not know him. That's what we're called to do. We just need to do it. It's life and death, right? Now. This is, this, we're dealing with eternity here. We're dealing with eternity. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you died right now, you miss it all. There are no second chances. You miss it all. That's reality. That's the truth. Like it or not. That is, that is the God's honest truth. If you do not know Jesus, I would love to introduce you to Him. Please give me that chance. If you're looking for a church home, Come on up. We'd love to have you. 
Or if there's something else, I would love to pray with you. However the Lord moves you this morning, I just, I just pray you be obedient to Him. Just obey Him. Again, thank you all for coming this morning. I'd like to invite uh, these two <laughs> troublemakers. <laughs> Come on up. <laughs> this is uh, Priscilla and her mom, Bernice. And they've been attending with us for how long? It's been, it's been a few months, hasn't it? And uh, they feel led to make this their, their home. They, they, want, they want to make this their home. Uh, now, Priscilla here, uh, she needs to be baptized. So we, we'll be adding her to the list of those who need to be baptized. I'm hoping maybe in June we can, we can do this. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm excited about that. I, I just... You know, God's just moving in our community, moving in our midst. He's doing some, just doing some things, and and oftentimes I, I feel like I'm just along for the ride, and uh, and just you know just trying to trying to get through this. So I, sh- I sh- I'm just so thankful what he, what He's doing and just adding adding to our numbers. And that's that's kind of the word that uh, it was used in Acts that that, that God God added to their numbers, and, and so uh, they, we are adding these two. Uh, to our numbers, and so uh, church, if if uh, you would agree to me to to accept them as as members, can I get a, an a- amen? Uh, okay, I'm not going to ask the other question. <laughs> Be seated. Yes. So so, so yes. Yeah, so thank you. So so thank you. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just excited with God's with God's doing here. Let me uh, let me close us in prayer. I'll, I'm going to pray for our for our offering, and then also I'll pray for our food as well. Father, I thank you so much for uh, for bringing us here this morning. I thank you that you're just so good. Uh, I thank you that you love us in spite of us. In spite of us, you are madly in love with us. Father, help us to to honor you. Help us to trust you. Help us to live for you. For you are worthy. Father, I thank you for this time where we can give back just a a portion of what you have given us. Father, help us to be cheerful givers. Bless bless the gift, Father. Uh, And Lord God, I I, I pray that you'd help us as a church to use your money wisely. I thank you, Father, for that. And then, Lord God, for our fellowship afterwards. Lord, I just pray that our fellowship together would be enriching and uh, nurturing. Uh, Father, we just love one another. Uh, that's, that's my prayer, Lord. Bless the food that we partake of. Bless those who have provided and have brought food. And Father, again, use this time for your glory. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.